0: Uh, Hey everyone, Russ Thornton. Um, Welcome to another episode of Women's Retirement Radio. Uh, Today I am joined by a longtime friend and colleague, uh, Brian Yearwood. Uh, Brian is my go-to residential lending professional for mortgages, refinancing, things like that. Um, I've used Brian personally. I've sent uh, probably, I don't know, at least a dozen, maybe more clients to uh, Brian over the years. Um, Had Great feedback, uh, great experiences personally as well. So uh, Brian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Russ. Good morning.
0: Yeah, why don't, uh, you know, clearly you and I have known each other for a while now, but uh, for those that aren't familiar, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: I am. Well, I've been in business for 20. My business partner and I started this 20 years ago this year. We're a mortgage broker. Uh, not many partnerships last 20 years. That's, a lot of marriages don't last 20 years.
0: But yeah, no, no kidding. Um, Congrats.
1: Yeah, thank you. But I was in the wholesale side of this uh, for about five years ahead of time. Previous to that, I was I was and I graduated college with an accounting degree. So I swore I'd never do accounting again, and then I found myself right back in it. But um, it 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 has served me. Served me well in this industry so it's uh we're we're mortgage brokers as opposed to mortgage lenders we're actually a licensed lender that's getting pretty detailed but we broker every deal we do because we've we've got the ability to shop with different lenders and find the best deal for for each unique individual so yeah that's a little bit about us we just we uh we kill what we eat and uh two-man shop and we've been doing this for 20 years and i think we'll do it till we die
0: yeah and i I was trying to think back um, how long it's been since you and I first got in touch with each other. I mean, it's—I I gotta think it's been ten, maybe twelve years, maybe longer than that. Do you do you even have any guess?
1: I think it's been longer than that. And I was trying to think of that yesterday. How I came, how you came to me. I think it was either a mutual client or somewhere. And I, I kind of chuckled. I remember the first the first deal I did for one of your people. You were. You, you were in touch with me more than they were because you wanted to make sure before you referred anybody, you were going to make sure it was done right. And, uh, and I appreciated that and knew, knew, uh, you were taking good care of your clients. And I think that's why we've worked together so well over the years, but I, I, I gotta think it's been 10, thir- 10, 12, 13 years.
0: Yeah. I, um, I, I think I, I went back, um, and, and was doing a little bit of, uh, digging myself, uh, ahead of this call. I think I found you originally through a group called the upfront mortgage uh, brokers association. Um, you
1: know, that's it. That's exactly it. And I'm, I'm looking now in my records, I did your brother's loan in 2009. So we know it's been at least 12 years, Yeah. but, uh, yeah, upfront mortgage brokers was a phenomenal group, um, that, that, that handled their business in a more transparent way. Now, I, I still get leads from that group from time to time, but it's been kind of deemed, it's been kind of disabled because now the government requires that same kind of transparency and has for the last six or seven years. So what we felt like was important 15 years ago and how to run our business, everybody else got on board and, and now we all are held to that same standard. So it was, it was was it was a good group for a lot of years.
0: And and while the transparency has improved and maybe helped level the playing field, I wanna I wanna kind of hammer home something you mentioned when you were introducing yourself, and it's the fact that you're a broker and not a uh, a lender uh, or or in my mind what I think of as a captive lender. So um, uh, I'm probably oversimplifying, and you can set me straight here, Brian. But you know, in my mind, there are brokers like yourself who can kind of act as independent agents and shop around and look at different you know, underwriters and lenders and uh, loan deals on behalf of your clients. Then there are maybe the more traditional type uh, lenders that work for a bank or for a specific lender. And they're really limited to whatever that bank or that specific lender um, has to offer or can bring to the table. Is that fairly accurate?
1: And, and the key word there was you, you said captive lender. So I tell people when they ask the difference between a broker and a lender you know, I tell them, uh, if you want a washing machine and you go to a Maytag store, if Maytag had their own store, all you all you see, all you have to choose from are Maytag. Um, I'm Home Depot. I've got Maytag, LG, GE. I've got all of it under one roof. Well, then their next question typically is, well, if you're a broker. Now, remember, we're a licensed lender. There's much more compliance with that. We do have the ability to lend our own money or use a warehouse line. We got that designation purely because a lot of real estate agents would always say, "Are you a broker or are you a lender they they sudden you know they think being a broker is bad well we we got that designation and became a lender, but we still choose to broker everything out. We might make a quarter point higher profit if we were acting as the lender, but we also incur a lot more liability and a lot more risk, so that's never been worth it for us to do. But the next question when I tell people, hey, I'm basically the di- distributor instead of the manufacturer, well, the, you know, are, are, you're know, a middleman then. Does that cost me extra? And 99% of the time, it actually costs people less because big lenders – I'll give you one example, and I don't want to get too boring with this. SunTrust used to be we – were, we were SunTrust's biggest broker by volume in the southeast, and remember, we were a two-man shop. But SunTrust was a regional bank, very big, they're truest now. Well, you could walk into any bank and get a mortgage. Well, they're, they're, they, that they that's called retail. They did a lot of loans and had a lot of exposure in the Southeast. They got into wholesale coming to people like me and letting me sell their 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 money to spread their risk. So they did wholesale on a nationwide basis and they did retail focused in the Southeast. And the reason for that is... What if there were you know a particularly bad hurricane season or a natural disaster in the southeast they might you know their their portfolio was focused in the southeast and they could take massive losses This way they spread their mortgage portfolio out nationwide so you, you can't do third party origination i e brokers and not be competitive. You can't go into a SunTrust bank and get a rate of 2.75 and then come to me and I can only offer a rate of 3%. They have to allow us to be competitive and compete with them or we're not gonna be selling their money. So most of the time, I'm gonna be cheaper than that bank, but now I've bored you to death on the difference between a, a, a broker and a lender, but you're right. Bottom line is I can shop your particular loan to 10 different lenders, find out the lender that is buying the market that day and get you the best deal possible.
0: Yeah. And I, whether you're talking about a mortgage or your insurance or other um, financial products and services, I always advocate using a independent broker that can, that is not limited to a single product manufacturer's inventory that can shop around and find the best solution for you and your situation, uh, regardless of, um, what that may, may look like. I just, I think that, uh, I don't think there's a way to eliminate I conflicts agree. that certainly reduces them.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and there are times to t- I tell people, you know, with, you know, for instance, jumbo products, super jumbo products, $2 million loans and above, there are going to be banks that that focus on that and that cannot be competed with. And when, when i when I get a jumbo deal, I want to know that I'm competitive before I quote that deal there. There are there will be six months throughout the year that a big bank will just own own the jumbo market and destroy everybody. And there'll be six months out of the year where, you know, they're where where my banks are competitive. And, And what I don't want to do is is quote something. When I'm a half a point off, so I've got contact with the bank, and I have him quote the deal. And and if they're, if I'm competitive, I say thanks for the information, and you know, I tell quote the borrower my deal. If I'm not competitive, I make the handoff and pass that on to that person at that bank because they are known for being, you know, notoriously aggressive on their jumbo product for part of the year. So, there are some banks that will have some specialties, and and I try to steer people. To that bank, if I can't do it as well, that you know, I get paid when I do someone else's loan. But I build relationships when I help that person find the best deal possible, even if it's not me.
0: Right. And just to clarify for our listeners, uh, can you uh, explain the difference between a what's a jumbo loan, what's not a jumbo loan, and and how does that impact pricing, loan terms, or does it?
1: It does, so uh, a, a conforming loan is a, well, I guess the proper term is conventional loan. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you've heard of the, those those agencies. Um, they set the conforming loan limit, and, and right now that conforming loan limit is $548,250. If you bought a house for a million dollars, hold on, I'm, I can't do it that quick in my head, and you put down $448,250, I think I had fat fingers there, but you get the point. If you put down $452,000, you can get a conforming loan. Um, If you buy a house for $600,000 and you want to put down $52,000, you can get a conforming loan. Any loan amount above that will not be backed by those agencies. And then you've got to go to banks or, you know, alternative lenders to get that loan that is higher than 548,250. And there are a lot of banks that do it, but you're typically not going to get as competitive of a rate with a with a jumbo loan as you are a conforming loan. So most people try to avoid jumbo if they can. You know, if you're buying a $1.5 million house and you've got 500000 dollars to put down, that's a that's a big down payment, but you need a jumbo loan.
0: Got it. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for kind of going into the details there. So the, the times you and I have talked or touched base over the last year or two, um, you've just been crazy busy, which is understandable with interest rates at well continuing to be at historic lows. Um, and uh, you and I both, I think, said for years now that rates are going to go up and at some point they will, but it hasn't happened yet. So Can you talk a little bit just experientially about what's been going on um, with the interest rate environment? What's that meant? What what that that's meant for mortgage lending, maybe maybe even touch kind of at a high level on the real estate market. And where you I'm not asking for a prediction because nobody knows what's going to happen or when. But um, how how do you see this shaking out or or how could you see this uh, playing out in the, let's say, next year or two or three, given kind of the environment we're in right now?
1: Man, that is so hard to say. 3 years ago, we we had really really good rates and, you know, we we've always we always work with a sense of urgency here when rates are low. You know, you want to refinance as many people as you possibly can and, you know, being self-employed in our world, you you've got to make hay as much as you can while the sun's shining. And, you know, it seems like for the past 3 years, I've told my wife and kids, "Hey, we'll go on vacation when interest rates are higher." And we we haven't been on many vacations in the last 3 years. But so, yeah, it's been a prolonged period of of low interest rates. COVID really threw everything for a loop and really dropped them like a bomb. You know, I've been doing this, like I said, for over 20 years. It it reminded me of the 9-11 effect. You know, rates really, really dropped after 9-11 because there was so much uncertainty. And the same exact thing happened with COVID. Um, you know, you factor in a lot of other economic factors and that keeps rates low. The real estate market, you know, that's baffling to me because to me, it seems like it's purely just an inventory thing. It's not like a bubble like it was in 2007, 2008. It might be a little ish. um. Who knows? But that, you know, I leave that to the, to the people much higher than my pay grade to analyze it all. We just, we just, we just react and try and get all we can in. It's funny right now. We're not doing a lot of purchase loans. There's not much inventory. I had someone, an agent give an example recently said buying a house. It's like going onto a car lot right now with. 100 cars on the lot but there's 300 car salesmen. There's just not much inventory and that seems to be at least in North Atlanta what's what's driving this this boom? Um I don't see inventory catching up anytime sooner. Um I also you know I can't put my finger on exactly how it's going to trickle down but I think there's going to be an effect in years to come on real estate because so many people now are at you know, 2% on a 15-year fixed, two and three quarters on a 30-year fixed. And and I give myself an example. When my wife and I bought our first house, you know, it was 2,200 square feet. We paid $290,000 for it, and we had a baby there. And then we got pregnant with another baby and then realized there was no way we were going to stay married with two small children in a 2,200-square-foot house. So we did the the move up. We sold that house and made about a $50,000 profit. And then we bought a more expensive house, which we're in still today, 21 years later. So the move up, the move up buyer, they, you know, people buy their first home and then that's their starter home. And then a few years later, they move up and they may move up again. May, maybe they don't. I see so few, so many, so, so few people doing that these days. And I think it's going to be exacerbated in years to come, because if you're in that starter house or maybe your second house and it's got some wear, you would normally buy another house. Well, what if rates are six percent? You're going from your four hundred thousand dollar house to a six hundred thousand dollar house. You're at two percent on your four hundred. You're going to go to six on your six hundred your mortgage payments gonna double or triple. And and I, I really see a lot more people now and think it's gonna start happening where a lot less people move, which will open up, you know, help with the inventory issues in years to come. But more and more people are putting more money into their house, putting that pool in, finishing that basement and making it their own because they just are not going to be able to afford to leave that interest rate. Now that 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 gets into your area of expertise, you know, if they're if if they own their house outright, and they've got the financial ability to be a cash buyer. They're going to be great in years to come with with mobility and being able to move and upgrade their house. But I just I just think in years to come there's going to be a lot less inventory. Well, maybe more inventory because there's going to be a lot less buyers as these rates go up. So I don't know where it's going. You know, all I know is if we get another couple years of low interest rates like this, I might not care. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I hear you. Um, and I know, uh, I know based on our conversations and and you're helping out some of my clients, um, a lot of people have had the opportunity to refinance two and three times over the last, say, you know, three, five, seven years or so as interest rates keep trickling down and they may be pulling some cash out. They may not, um, Do you have kind of a rule of thumb, Brian, where like, let's say somebody currently has a mortgage at, uh, I'm just making up a number, three and a half percent, and they're in a house that they plan to stay in for the foreseeable future. Is there like a a rule of thumb on when it makes sense to refinance, like if they can get a half a point lower on the rate? So in that example, if they could go from three and a half percent to three percent, does it typically make sense to refinance at that stage? Or are there other factors that go into that decision making process?
1: Well, you said, "Is there a rule of thumb?" And the rule, the rule of thumb is call a professional. And I'll give you some good examples. That's a great question. You know, Clark Howard—he—he he doesn't have his daily show anymore. Clark Howard—you—you you knows a, a a little bit about a lot of things. And they quit letting me get through to his show when I would call because it made me furious when he would tell people, "You—it's not worth refinancing your mortgage unless you can bring your interest rate down a full point." What has been in place for the entire time I've been in this in this this business is uh, the ability to do most loans with no closing costs. And I'll give a, a, a simple example like I do. I, I have to explain this concept to just about everybody that calls. They'll call and go, what's your rate? Well, I can get you a 30-year fixed at 2%. You're going to pay $30,000 in closing costs. The par rate that the lender wants to get, might be 2.75 and at 2.75 you're going to pay all your closing costs. Let's say $5,000. I can take if I look at 2.875 that lender is going to make a little more money off that interest rate. A, a, a mortgage is nothing more than a bond and they're going to yield more on that higher interest rate than they would at the lower interest rate. So they 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 will pay a premium for that mortgage. So and at 2. Point, or at 2.875, they'll pay a premium. At three, they'll pay a bigger premium. And three and an eight, they'll pay even bigger. Now it caps out at some point. So let's say I can do your loan at 2.75 with $5,000 in closing costs, or I can do it at 3.125 with zero closing costs. And let's say that payment is $80 higher, okay? So I can save you, if you take that higher rate, it saves you $5,000 in closing costs, but you pay 80, well, let's say $70 a month more. That's a more appropriate break even point. So 5,000 divided by 70 is 72 months. It's a six year break even. Okay. So for most people, I present multiple rates and, and I've got three conditions that I like to see met before I would choose that lower rate. Number one. Do you feel like you're permanent? Well, I'm not permanent in my house. My youngest graduates high school in 21 months and we will leave his graduation ceremony and come home and there'll be moving trucks packing me up because I will have mowed the lawn for the last time in my life. So I'm not going to be permanent. But somebody else that the next house we buy is probably going to be my last house. So let's pretend, you know, we're two years in the future. Are you going to be permanent? Well, for all that I know, yes. Number two, our interest rates are really, really low. And these interest rates today are really, really low. And number three is that break-even point less than 60 months. Well, right now it's not. That break-even point is 70, 80, 90 months plus because long-term bond yields are better than short-term bond yields. That's the complexity we don't need to dive into. But I try to present different options. So, if somebody owes five hundred thousand and I can bring them down three eighths of a point with no closing costs, it's gonna make sense. Five hundred thousand dollars times point oh oh three seven five is about is almost two thousand dollars a year in interest. So that's the way I look at it. I first do the math and see what a no closing cost loan would do. And if that moves the needle, then we explore those lower rates. Now, if you, I, I, I get these calls all the time. Somebody will owe sixty thousand on on their mortgage. A you know widow, retired person, somebody that's been in their house obviously a long time. They never refinance and they're at eight percent. And I'll spend an hour on the phone talking them out of refinancing because the 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 lesser you owe, the more you've got to move that needle to make it make sense. So. You know, I, I, I bet half the people that call me to refinance, I talk out of it. Um I I talk them out of it because it just doesn't make sense to do. And there's a lot of banks that would be glad to talk you into it, but each one matters. And and if somebody's at three point five right now and they owe four or five hundred thousand dollars and they think, well, rates are great. I just refinanced nine months ago. No way. Does it make sense? It probably does make sense. So, you know, I I handle my clients a little bit different. I I set a target rate for them. And if, if rates drop to a certain point, I try to be proactive and reach out to them to say, hey, you know, there's there's something here. I think you can save some money but there to to answer your question there is no rule of thumb it depends on how much you owe and it, it, you a good mortgage professional can tell you in about 2 minutes if it's worthwhile to refinance but they they need you to have a mortgage statement in hand and it's an easy drill
0: and uh hearing you explain that explain all that Brian my you know my takeaway is beware rules of thumb um it, it depends. And as you said at the top, it's that that's the benefit of talking to a professional, someone that's willing to take the time to kind of dig into your specific circumstances and figure out what may or may not make sense for for you, given given where you're at, given your your plans to stay in the home long term or not, given the interest rate environment, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that. exactly.
1: And, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people that call. Where it doesn't make sense to refinance. they're on a thirty. It doesn't make sense to refinance to another thirty, and we chat and we go. And a lot of times they end up going for a fifteen because a fifteen is going to have a much lower interest rate. Um, and, and you know, I, I'm refinancing somebody now that's at three percent on a thirty-year fixed. You know, they're going to two and an eighth on a fifteen-year fixed. That gets a little deeper into the financial planning side of what they're doing. And you know, uh, but but it, so if they're participating fully. In their 401k and every pre-tax retirement option they have, you know, I have that conversation about a 15. If they're not participating fully in their 401k or whatever pre-tax plan they have, you know, and they want to do a 15, I, I discourage that a lot of times and tell them let's let's focus on that that retirement bucket because it pays off much better than the 15-year fix does. So, so yeah, I delve into what you do a little bit, but I, I leave that to the professionals that know more than me.
0: Well, and I, you bring up an interesting point. I mean, I I know we just kind of dispelled the uh, the idea of of applying rules of thumb. Um I think that the benefit of dealing with someone like Brian or or I'd like to think dealing with someone like myself is um having uh having someone that's gonna take the time and energy to learn about you, your situation, figure out exactly what 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 you need and what's the best solution for you. Um and when it comes to mortgage lending, like in I would say nine out of ten cases, I recommend that that my typical clients, who again are, are usually in their fifties and sixties, um, they're they're usually in or will soon be in kind of their forever home. Um, I usually advise them to go with um, either on a purchase or refinance to a thirty year loan, um, a thirty year fixed loan, because um, it gives them the lowest required uh, monthly payment um, with with the intention that they're going to pay more. So um, my thinking is, uh, and I'd love your thoughts on this too, Brian, but my thinking is for someone that's going to buy or refinance a home, that's going to be in that home for the foreseeable future, um, I'd say, you know, 10, 15 years or more. I like like to see them go with a 30 year fixed. So they've got the lowest required monthly payment with the option that they can always throw more money at the principal if they're uh, willing and able to. Versus going with a 15-year fixed where they're locking in a much lower a lower rate, but they've got a much higher um, required monthly payment. So um, admitting up front that it's going to depend on each person's situation, um, what are your thoughts on that? Like going with a, you know, kind of going with a 30-year with the ability to pay more versus maybe a 15-year if they have the willingness and the ability to handle the, the cash flow sure. difference?
1: You to- totally agree with your with your stance. You know, when when I deal with younger couples, maybe that have just bought that move up, they're making good money. You know, <clears throat> they've got margin. Um, you know, I strongly recommend the fifteen. I'm 56 years old, and I and I really my greatest financial regret was when I bought my house. You know, when I was 35, that I didn't do a 15 year fixed mortgage. I could afford it, um, just didn't do it. Didn't you know it. it, it some point we all go through the point in our life whether we need a new car, need a new house, you know, can you keep my payment the same? We live we we manage our finances based on cash flow. The sooner you flip that switch and and manage your finances based on how it affects your net worth, the better off you'll be in the end. So, yeah, if I yeah, I've got a client, I just did a he he bought a house in Florida, I think he's 78. He had the money to pay cash. His financial guy want, didn't want him to pay cash because interest rates were so low. And he same thing, he wanted him to do a 30. And, and the guy said, well, geez, I, you know, I'd like the house paid off if, you know, I'm not going to live for 30 years. I'd like to have it paid off. And I said, we chuckled. I said, let that be your kid's problem. That doesn't need to be yours. You know, you're living on a fixed income. Why spend 2500 a month on your mortgage, you know, when you can spend thirteen hundred a month on, on your mortgage and there'll still be equity left for your children, but it gives you a lot more to live on. It just depends on everybody's circumstance, how much longer they're going to be earning, you know. Uh I'll probably work another 10 or 12 years. So if I bought a house now, I'd probably go ahead and do a 15. If you know 10 years from now we found that permanent house, I'd probably I'd probably do exactly that and do the 30. And let my kids deal, deal with it when I got hit by a bus one day. So it depends on everybody's circumstance. But the younger they are, the more I try to, I guess, push them a little bit towards the fifteen because the, you know I've never done a fifteen for anybody and, and, and had them regret it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, it depends
1: on it depends on the circumstance. But the other the other issue right now with that Russ, the spread between a fifteen and a thirty in a healthy market is typically a half point sometimes even less. So if you do the 30 and you can do it at 4%, you might get a well, let's use today's numbers. You can do it at 2.75, you might get that 15 at 2 and a quarter. That spread's bigger now. You know, it's 2 2.75 on a on a 30 and 1.875 on a 15 if you're paying the closing costs. So I I always give people the difference between the two and you know, it's it it that difference is more significant now than it has been in the past. But but I, I just try to give options and see what fits best for them. And a lot of times, people do opt to do that thirty and just pay extra, and that's a that's a fantastic plan too because you can always scale back to that lower payment. You know, if you hit a rough patch.
0: Yeah. Well, it I think on how much
1: margin that person has.
0: And I think this idea we keep coming back to of it depends uh, applies whether you're talking about mortgages or retirement or financial planning or or, or you know uh, again I'll, I'll 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 say it again um and probably won't be the last time I say it, but beware of uh, beware of rules of thumb um speaking of it depends um many many clients that I have referred to you uh in the past Brian are women in their you know 50s 60s they are um they're maybe going through a divorce um and let's say they're awarded the marital home. So um, they're married, they live in a home, they get divorced, and they have the option to keep the home that they've been living in. Um, and let's say there's still a mortgage on that house. That introduces some complexities and some decisions and some things to think about, both from an income and cash flow standpoint, as well as whose names on the um, on the mortgage and, and things like that. So uh, I know that's a big question, but uh, could you maybe just talk a little bit about um, how maybe a woman dealing with divorce might think about um, a mortgage um, you know in the in the wake of a you know maybe as part of a divorce settlement with the uh, attached to the marital home?
1: Yep, we deal with it all the time. and and, and unfortunately, we're di- we're we're trying to clean up with a lot of these. It's been my experience in in these 20 years we've been doing this, that divorce attorneys, they will, I'm dealing with one of these right now, they will, you know, husband and wife will come to whatever agreement they're going to come to, the attorneys write it up, get everybody to sign it, file it, then they come to me. Well, the one I've got recently, you know, is the husband's going to stay in the house in this case, he's got 30 days to refinance the house, or he's got to list it and sell it. Um, he can't refinance the house because with the child support, he's now got to pay, you know, his debt ratio doesn't work. It never, can you can never go wrong when you know it's inevitable. Now, this needs to be before someone files, but if someone has not filed yet, but you're at the stage where you know it's going to happen, you need to have a conversation with a mortgage professional because it, it, a, if, if, let's use the example of a, woman that that does not work. She she left the workforce years ago to raise her kids and her kids are now grown and, and she never returned to the workforce and thought everything was great and suddenly finds herself uh, going through a bad situation. Well, that attorney may say, okay, you can stay in the house, but you need to refinance it within six months to get it out of so-and-so's name or, or three months to get out of so-and-so's name. Before that settlement is made, we need to be able to tell is she going to be able to refinance? Um, You know, we need to do a pre-approval of sorts for six months down the road to know if that person is going to be able to. And if that person's only source of income is alimony slash child support, you can't use that as reliable income until it has been received, you know, exactly the amount that has been called for in the court order for six months. So if you've got a both parties agree that wife will refinance the house within three months and get the husband off the mortgage and she doesn't work. Her only source of income is alimony and, and or child support. You've just come up with, a, with an agreement two people agreed to, but it's impossible to carry out. So and that creates a lot of messes then because, you know, now the husband might be, you know, looking to buy another house and he can't buy that other house because this payment still going to count against him. Um It also depends on the length of the marriage. You know, I find that the the longer people have been married, the, the later in life they get divorced. You know, younger people, okay, got divorced. Maybe something, you know, there's infidelity going on. The husband wants to start his new life somewhere else. He wants to buy a new house as soon as possible. Later in life, you've been married for 30 years. You probably don't want to get married again if you didn't make that one work out. In that case, you don't necessarily have to refinance it. You know, if my wife left me next week, it would be heartbreaking, but I wouldn't make her refinance the house out of my name. You know, I would just, all right, you guys stay in the house and I'll move along and and buy another house. So it it, it depends on where they stand, you know, how the divorce went. So it it, it does require a lot of planning though, and it never hurts. And I wish, I wish these divorce attorneys would recommend first thing, Hey, before we commit anything to paper, before we file anything, you need to see how this is going to look with a mortgage guy to see if this can be done because there's just all too many of these that are written and the wife has no option to refinance and either has to get a concession from the ex-husband to stay there longer or they have to sell. And if, if, kids are involved most of the time dad will grant that concession and say okay let's do this for another six months or another year because i don't want to upset the apple cart with the kids but it just depends on the situation it is always or it's never going to be wasted time to talk to a mortgage guy for 30 minutes before you go through with it
0: yeah that's a that's a great point and um I, I could make the same argument when uh when I've seen kind of the aftermath of some um some divorce settlements with regards to investments and in accounts and things like that. But um with regard to homes and uh, mortgage uh mortgage balances and things like that, um yeah, there's if you if if you're listening and you take nothing else away, there are a lot of moving parts there. Um, it makes uh, a whole heck of a lot of sense to talk to someone like Brian to kind of get a lay of the land before you get knee deep into a an emotional uh, divorce settlement negotiation. Um, because once uh, once the judge signs off on the court order, um, you know it's it's super expensive to go back and get those things um, adjusted or um, Uh, or or try to get things changed after the fact. So um, the more planning or forethought you can give these types of matters, even if, as Brian mentioned, even if it's just like an informational, just like say, hey, this is what I might find myself facing here in, you know, six or 12 months time, you know, is there anything I need to think about? Is there anything I need to discuss with my spouse or our attorneys or anything like that, Uh, I think would be time and energy well spent and could save you a lot of, a lot of headaches and potentially even a lot of money down the road as well. So, um,
1: absolutely. Yep. Yeah, always, yeah. always get counsel in that area because it, 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 it I, I would, I would guess that 50% of the divorce or the settlement agreements I see. Are are nonsense because the wife cannot qualify for a mortgage, and it it was just written that way. You know these divorce attorneys, people trying not to spend a ton of money. They're trying to do it amicably and use one attorney. You know they want to get this. The attorney wants to get the agreement written and signed and filed and move on to the next one. So you got to you got to do a deeper dive to make sure you're you're not stepping in in deep water.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, A moment ago, you mentioned that you might you know, work another 10 or 12 years. I'm curious since a lot of what I talk about on these podcast episodes with folks like yourself ties back to retirement, um, specifically as it relates to women, but but also just retirement generally. So uh so if you've got another 10 or 12 years in you, um, what is what does retirement look like for you and and your your family, Brian? Have you thought that far down the road yet?
1: Oh, oh yeah. As you get to be my age, I'm a little bit older than you. As you get to be my age, you start thinking about it. But that—that that, that was a little tongue in cheek. Ten or twelve years, I, I am—I um, I don't think I'll do well with retirement. I'm like a toddler. I need structure. <laughs> and if I, you know, if I have a long weekend, it's bad enough. Especially this time of year, you know, a lot of golf and hunkered down for college football, and that's eight hours in the same chair. But I love it. But um, yeah, I've got to have some structure. So I think retirement, I, I do think I'll be doing mortgages till the day I die. Um, but retirement for me is probably scaling back, getting an assistant because, you know, it, it, like your business, Russ, w- we work years and years and years to build a book of business. So, you know, our phone rings from referrals. So it walking away from that, you know, it, it, it you, you can't ever go back to it. So yeah, I would probably hire someone that, that wanted to learn the mortgage business, someone that would handle my clients the way I do. But I would still stay active, you know. And my goal is to not touch my retirement, and and hopefully one day leave a legacy for my kids. Who knows if I'll be able to work that long? But boredom doesn't work well for me. I need some structure.
0: Well, and is it hearing you put it in those terms? Is is it fair to assume that you uh, enjoy? Enjoy what you do enjoy the the mortgage business and and working with your clients
1: oh absolutely it's such a it's a, it's such a relationship and a, and, a, and I've developed so many friendships you know I, I know I've done your loan, your brothers and a lot of your clients i I, I spent years you know we had thirty one loan officers at one point i and I realized I didn't like managing. I wanted the relationships. I went to every single closing I had as long as it was in within a, even a two or three hour drive. Well, COVID happened. And for the first time in, in my career, I was not able to go to closings and it tore, it tore me up a little bit. I, I go to closings, cements that relationship. You, it's a very intimate transaction that takes about a month to do. You get to know somebody quite well, and then at closing, you actually put a name with the face, and you, you really you know ice down that relationship, and, and that's hopefully a relationship you've created for life. Well, suddenly, we couldn't go to closings because attorneys wouldn't let non-signers in the room. Boy, I found out you can be a lot more productive not taking nine or 10 hours of your week attending and driving to and from closings, and you can do a whole lot more volume, but I do miss that. You know, you're not. Maybe you are cementing that relationship. I don't know. Only time will tell. But, but yeah, I, I've enjoyed the relationships. I'm now doing a lot of business for the children of past clients, and it, it just really, it, you know, we don't. Not a lot of people have jobs that that can be gratifying, especially pushing paper. I really get a kick out of a long-term client that I've had 10, 15 years calls me and says, hey, my son's buying a house. I told him I'd help him with the down payment, but only if he comes to you for the mortgage. And then I can get my hands on that kid, start trying to help them. You know, I go way deeper than just the mortgage. We, we get into spending and some Dave Ramsey principles, and I really do enjoy creating those relationships and working with people to try and make their life better you know, that if somebody had gotten hold of me in my early thirties, you know, I'd probably be able to retire right now. So so yeah, I do enjoy what I'm doing. I do I, I do feel like this is this is the way I serve. Um and, and therefore I'm not afraid to tell somebody when they're doing something bad either because I'm not worried about doing that particular loan. So I've really been blessed with what I do for a living and my only regret is I didn't do it twenty years earlier.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think at the end of the day, I mean, so many people, I, I think, see retirement as this finish line and they just want to be able to stumble across the finish line and get out of work that they don't enjoy or, or maybe they find just like soul crushing or, or things like that. Uh, not only are you self-employed, which gives you, um, while while it's puts a lot more burden and responsibility on your shoulders. It also gives you a lot more flexibility, but you're self-employed doing work you you love. So um, I, I, I think it's interesting that, um, I think it's a great opportunity that you get to um, make a living doing well, doing something you, uh, do, doing good by people, but doing something you enjoy. Because, uh, you know, as long as you're not killing yourself and you, can strike and maintain some, you know, some level of work-life balance. Um, and you talked about, you know, scaling back in the future. Um, you know, why, why would you stop? So um, I think, I think yeah. that's a great, I think that's a great uh, perspective on retirement. And um, as I talk to more and more folks um, on this podcast and elsewhere, um, I continue to see just this idea of uh, retirement where you retire and just sit on the couch and watch prices, right. Or whatever that, that seems to be, uh, increasingly a thing of the past, so I, I think uh, I think that's a refreshing perspective, and I I appreciate you sharing that, Brian. Um,
1: Glad to do it. Yeah, anybody that can, can can it's not really retirement if you enjoy if you enjoy what you're doing. You know that that that's where I'm so lucky. I do not ever hate going to work in the morning.
0: Yeah, well, and and yeah, if you if you really enjoy it, it's not you know arguably it's not even work at that point. I mean. It, it is, but it's not because it's something that,
1: I'd, I'd still rather be on the golf course or at the lake, but yeah. for, as far as work goes, this isn't too bad to have.
0: Yeah. So listen, this has been great. We've covered a lot. Uh, I I appreciate you sharing your expertise and your experience, uh, in the, uh, mortgage, uh, and residential finance business with our listeners. We've covered a lot. We could probably continue to talk for another hour and, and not, uh, not having any trouble doing so, but is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I had, or is there anything else you wanted to cover before we kind of wrap things up today, Brian?
1: No, the the only thing I tell people is, you know, don't, don't sell, and I'm sure you tell them the same thing. Don't self-diagnose because so many people don't think they need to refinance or, think they need to refinance, but they don't. You know, I, I play a lot of golf at my club and, you know, I'll meet a new, get put with a couple of new guys and somebody says, oh, you're in the mortgage business. Yeah. You know, what are rates doing these days? And I tell them, they're like, wow, I didn't know interest rates are that well. I, I think your mortgage guy shouldn't just be the bank, you know, some nameless, faceless person at the bank. It ought to be somebody you can check in with once a year, even just a little email to say, hey, I hear rates are really, really low. Do I need to be looking at this? Hopefully they're being proactive with you, but I I would encourage people to make that relationship a bit deeper than just somebody, you know, doing one transaction and then, you know, taking the can down the road, make them, consider them like your insurance agent or your financial planner. You're going to have a lot less contact with them, but somebody that you can check in with. And and I would, I would put it in my calendar once a year, Hey, check in with so-and-so and, you know, make sure I don't need to do anything with a mortgage. You never know.
0: And I, I think that just reinforces what uh, the an important word you've mentioned many times throughout our conversation, which is relationship. It, it, it I can speak personally, uh, having worked with you and having um, worked with you on behalf of um, my clients over the years. That you don't look at a mortgage as a transaction, but you look at it as an opportunity to build a build a uh, an ongoing relationship with uh, with someone. And you've shared some great stories throughout our conversation today, which I, I think, uh, reflect that. So, uh, I think that's a, I think that's a great phrase. Your mortgage
1: great. is one component of your overall financial picture. And a lot of times people don't look at it. They look at it as a product and not as a tool. So yeah, you, that's why it works well. You and I working in concert with your clients because, you know, we approach it a little bit different. So yeah, look deeper than just the surface.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clearly, if if someone listening uh, wants to talk to Brian, um, you know, get in touch with me. I'm happy to connect you, as I've done many, many times in the past. But uh, Brian, if someone listening wants to reach out to you direct, what's the what's the best way for them to get in touch or to learn a little bit more about who you are and what you're working on?
1: Best ways, just good old fashioned telephone. Um, we're 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 kind of old school. We don't have a very robust website. We just have one because everybody has to have one. I like a conversation. Uh, my phone number is 678-992-7100. And I, if I don't answer the phone, it's because I'm on another call, but I will call you right back.
0: Yeah. And um, I will be sure to include your uh, phone number and a link to your website in the show notes for this episode. Um, thanks again, Brian. Always enjoy speaking with you. And uh, I, uh, I'm happy that we we're able to kind of share our conversation with uh, with our listeners today. So, uh, So thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks for having me, Russ. Have a good, have a good week.
0: Yeah, and uh, everyone out there listening, thanks for joining us for another episode of Women's Retirement Radio, and uh, we look forward to catching, uh, catching up with you again next time. It's Russ again, and before you go, I want to provide a brief disclosure. You should consult a financial advisor familiar with the specific circumstances of your unique financial situation before making any financial decisions. Nothing in this broadcast constitutes a solicitation for the sale or purchase of any securities. Any mentioned rates of return are historical or hypothetical in nature and are not a guarantee of future returns. I'm a financial advisor and an investment advisor representative of Wealthcare Capital Management, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor based in Richmond, Virginia. The views discussed in this podcast are my own and may not be consistent with or represent those of Wealthcare Capital Management.